If you'd like to join me tonight in the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah, one of the minor prophets, but a major name in the Bible. You'll find that on page 623 of a pew Bible, if you would like to join us there. Jonah is one of the most familiar characters in all of Scripture, and if we're reading closely in the text, it's for all the wrong reasons why he is so familiar to us. Jonah is a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II, king of the northern kingdom, once it has split into two. And he is told by God at one point in his ministry to go to the city of Nineveh to preach. Nineveh is foreign territory, and not only is it foreign territory, Gentile territory, it is also hostile territory. These are the enemies of the Israelites. This is an empire that is legendary in the ancient world for its brutality. And he is told to go right into the heart of that empire, into its capital city of Nineveh, and preach to them as a warning that God will destroy this city. It might be a little bit like God today telling me to go to Tehran and Iran and preach in the streets there, or maybe Pyongyang in North Korea and go preach in the streets there. Our immediate thoughts would be, if Jonah refuses to go, well, it's because he's afraid. Well, he would have reason to fear these Assyrian people. Again, they are known for their brutal violence. But that is not the reason Jonah is going to give for the reason why he did not want to go. We as the reader have to wait until chapter 4 to find out that reason. And we're going to come back to that later in our sermon and reveal that in a little bit. But first we want to talk about some other events that lead up to that conversation with God at the end of the book of Jonah where he has that big reveal moment of why he fled and went the other way. And our focus in this book tonight, as we could take a lot of different angles here, is to give an overview of the story of Jonah's life showing some highlights, but particularly tonight as part of a larger series in what we are doing, trying to show how some of these events anticipate the life of Jesus. They set us up for understanding Jesus and appreciating Jesus in a much deeper way. Jonah hops on a boat at a seaport and heads in the opposite direction. He is the prophet who runs, the reluctant prophet the prophet trying to get away. The ship is going to Tarshish, which is the opposite direction. It is what we, most likely, what we know today as Spain. It's at the far end of the western end of the Mediterranean, which is the opposite direction of if you were to go to Nineveh, which would be by land, to go to the north and to the east of where Palestine is. He wants to get as far away from where he's supposed to be as he can. God has a way of thwarting our plans sometimes, especially when they are in contradiction to something he has already said. In this case, God is going to bring up a violent storm. Jonah is on board the ship and everyone on boat on board is going to be terrified. The text says that he's crying out to his own God. And they're pagans. Now they're not believers in Yahweh. They've heard of Yahweh. Uh, from this text. They're a little bit more afraid even when they hear Jonah mention that name, that that's his God, and that he is going to say he's the reason for this storm. But initially, they're all concerned. They're all looking for what do we do in this moment, all except for Jonah. 
And Jonah, we're told, has gone underneath in the ship. Again, this is a pretty large ship. It's a long journey. And the text tells us that he's asleep. While they're all concerned, Jonah is at the bottom of the boat, asleep. And here's where we have our first of many shadows of events that take place in the ministry of Jesus. There's a familiar story in the ministry of Jesus that also involves him on a boat, on a sea, with a bunch of other men, not quite as many men, but a few, and a storm comes up, and everyone on that boat is concerned and is afraid. And yet, like Jonah, Jesus, we are told in the text, is in the stern of the boat. I know this is a much smaller boat. This is a fisherman's boat. But the stern of the boat, the lowermost part of the boat, and Jesus is also asleep. And in both cases... The men come to the one who's asleep and they wake him up and they say, basically say something to the effect of, do you not care? Are you not concerned about what's going on here? Now what happens next in each of the stories is different though. Jonah, to his credit, realizes he is the reason for the storm. He does not try to deny it. And he tells them straight up that the solution is going to be to toss him into the sea. Jesus, in his storm, sees his disciples' fear as a lack of faith. And he responds simply by calming the storm, by speaking to the winds and to the waves. Jonah is sacrificed into the storm so that others could be saved from it, but he is sacrificed into the storm because of his own sin. That's what has caused the storm. With Jesus, his disciples feel that he is going to sleep on them in their moment of greatest need, in the middle of their storm. When in reality, a bigger storm is going to come a few months later. And in the end, it will actually be his disciples who are asleep on him in his moment of greatest need. Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, he knows what's about to happen, and they're asleep. And ultimately, he is thrown into the great storm, the storm of trial, of mockery, of crucifixion, of suffering and death. He's plunged into that chaos, that hell, Not because of his sin, as Jonah was, but because of ours. As we come back to the Jonah story, you get into the end of chapter 1 and you get on into chapter 2. We're ready for maybe the most memorable scene from this entire book. Maybe what we remember from Jonah's life more than anything else. Especially from our vacation Bible schools where... We saw this story play out so much. And that is that Jonah's life is spared only because he is swallowed up by what the Bible calls a great fish, a sea creature. Most believe that this is, this is a whale. 
And for the belly of this sea creature, Jonah prays. And this prayer, if you look at it in chapter 2, it has the language of death. It has the language of burial. It has the language of resurrection in it. Look at some of it with me. Verse 2. Jonah says, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. That's from the realm of the dead. His life is associated with with death at this point. Verse 5. Water encompassed me to the point of death. Verse 6. The earth with its bars was around me forevermore. But then he also says these words in anticipation of what's about to happen in verse 6. He says, but you have brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God. That's the language of resurrection. No, Jonah hasn't literally died, but he has nearly died. He would have died if God had not intervened. He's been on the edge of death here. He has been buried, in a sense, inside this sea creature, and he's about to be vomited onto dry land from his place of burial. As Tim Mackey says, Jonah's submarine death becomes his passage back to life. God often works in that way. And if you go back to the end of chapter 1, verse 17, it says that the time to accomplish this figurative death, burial, and resurrection was three days. If you go to Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, and there's going to be some scribes and some Pharisees who are testing him, and they want to see a sign from him. If they were paying attention, they should have been seeing signs all along, but they want another sign, of course. Jesus calls them out for that. And he says, the only sign that you're going to need, and I'm paraphrasing here, the only sign you're ultimately going to get, the only sign you should need to know who I am is the sign of Jonah. And he explains it by making a direct connection between the three days in the belly of that sea creature and his three days in the heart of the earth, as he phrases it in Matthew, before he was raised back to new life. Vomited, spewed from the tomb, we may say. Back to Jonah. Jonah ends up going to Nineveh after all of this. He's finally going to end up in his destination where he was supposed to be all along. He preaches a sermon which, at least in what we have in the scriptures, it's only five words in Hebrew. Very short. It's a warning that the city will be overthrown. Now, no other details are given in the text. No specifics of what the people had done wrong. No message on how to respond. No mention of God, even. Now, we don't know Jonah didn't say all those things or some of those things. He may have. It's just that's not what the text gives us. It gives us a very short message, and maybe the reason for that is that Jonah's keeping this as short and sweet as possible so he can be done with doing his duty as quickly as he can and then can get to the overlook spot over this city where he's going to set up camp and wait for what's going to happen. Because we're going to find out in chapter 4 
Jonah doesn't want these people to repent. Surprisingly, though, the people of Nineveh believe God. And they do repent. And it is a widespread show of repentance in this book. The king of Nineveh, you know, the head of maybe the most brutal empire in the history of the world, maybe. At least up to that time it had been. He humbles himself by taking off his robe and replaces this robe of royalty with clothes of mourning. Sackcloth. If you read about it in the scriptures, it is an outward sign of what is supposed to be an inner repentance. Sackcloth. Covers himself with ashes. Another sign of, of you mourning over what has taken place. Wanting to show a real sign of change. And everyone does this. The king does it. Everyone in this city, you know, this, this is widespread revival that's happening in this city. They even put sackcloth on the animals. You know, the cattle are repenting. This book is full of surprising characters. You got a prophet of God who's actually the rebellious one, and yet he's supposed to be a prophet. You got pagan sailors who are ones who seem to show the most repentance and, and a real proper fear of God on that boat. You got a powerful king of a vicious empire who humbles himself. You got animals wearing sackcloth. You got a very strange story. You got it full of surprises. It's not what we would expect out of each of these characters. Maybe part of the message of this book is God knows something about us that doesn't always meet the eye. Jesus is later going to allude to this moment of Jonah's preaching to Nineveh and the people's response in at least a couple of places in the Gospels. If you look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. He's going to call out two Galilean cities for their rejection of the Messiah during his ministry. He's going to say, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are Jewish cities, Galilean cities around the Sea of Galilee. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which are Gentile cities, similar to Nineveh, called out for some evil sometimes in the scriptures but they are cities uh, with Gentile people and Jesus says if miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon that occurred in you they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes almost certainly a reference to Jonah's preaching to pagan to a pagan city Jesus is saying many Gentiles many pagan peoples had more of a hunger for God than did the descendants of Abraham. Again, surprises. And then you go one chapter later to Matthew chapter 12 verse 41. Right after he talked about the sign of Jonah, he's going to talk about Nineveh. And he's going to say to his crowd there, on that occasion, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold something greater than Jonah is here so what happens to Nineveh well you would think with this kind of repentance this kind of response to preaching most preachers would be ecstatic at that I like to think I would you know if if 
If those who heard the sermon, imagine even just in a gathering that we have tonight, if everyone who heard the sermon, if everyone was on the front row (laughs) confessing sin, uh, making pledges of commitment, asking for prayer, and we were all praying for each other. uh, And imagine imagine a citywide revival breaking out. I mean, can you imagine that happening in D.C.? I hope I would be overflowing with gratitude when that happened. But not Jonah. Jonah sets up camp just outside the city. Somewhere the text text tells us to the east of the city. Apparently where he can have a good view of the fireworks that he's expecting or hoping for. He wants the city destroyed. I mean, this is the Berlin of World War II. This is the epicenter of evil in Jonah's mind. And we have a chance to see it bombed with heavenly fire and brimstone. That's what he's hoping for. He's hoping for something like Sodom and Gomorrah. I picture Job's got his, you know, he's got his camping chair set up. He's got his popcorn popped. You know, he's ready to take in a show. God even says, let me help you out with your comfort a little bit, Jonah. No need to get your precious head sunburnt. Let me cause this plant to grow up over you, give you some shade, protect you from that heat. But in the end, the city is not destroyed. Something the story teaches us about God is he, res- he responds to repentance. And the preaching from Jonah was not just something to rub it in their face. Ha ha, God's going to get you. No, this was God genuinely concerned about people. Jew, Gentile, whoever. People he created in his image. People whom he loved. God desires all to come to repentance. And he accepts their repentance. Jonah does not get to see the fireworks. And then Jonah gets really ticked off when a worm eats the shade plant that God had grown over him. And he's back to that sun beating down on him. And his enemies are still alive. And Jonah, in this moment of distress, has just revealed the real reason he ran away from God and ran toward Tarshish. It wasn't because he was afraid of the Assyrians. At least that's not the reason he gives. It's because he hates them. He wants them judged. He didn't want to give them warning. He didn't want to give them a chance to repent. In fact, he quotes God's own words about his nature that he spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai long ago. And that is that he is a gracious and compassionate God who is slow to anger. He's abundant in steadfast love. And Jonah says he knew that he would relent concerning calamity. Jonah quotes this to God as if it's an insult. He's mad about this. He thinks it's a weakness. We had perfectly good reason to have our enemies killed. Why'd you have to get in the way, God? 
And he says twice in this last chapter that he wishes he was dead, something to that effect. You know what he's saying? He's basically saying, I'd rather die than live with a God who loves his enemies. And God's response to Jonah's anger is to talk about that plant. Jonah, even you, as hard-hearted as you are, you had compassion for a plant. And you didn't even work for it. You didn't design it. You didn't cause its growth. You didn't plan a purpose for it. And it's a plant. But you still had compassion on it and you were grieved when it was taken away. Jonah, are people not more valuable than plants? Especially people that I I made in my own image, fearfully and wonderfully made them. I designed them with a purpose. How much more would you be grieved if people that you had made, created in your image, designed with purpose, fashioned them with a potential to love and to flourish and to do everything else that you made them to do, and you looked upon them as they treated one another with violence and with hatred. And they failed to flourish. They failed to grow into who you wanted them to be. They threw it all away. And they're missing out on the good life. But you know that potential is still there in them. Would you not rather preserve life than destroy it? Even with all we've talked about tonight, perhaps the ultimate message of Jonah in connection with Jesus is for you to think about this question. I think ultimately, with everything else in this book, the question it is asking each of us is this. Are you okay with a God who loves his enemies? Are you okay with a God who has compassion on those that you don't think deserve compassion? As we may say in our age, are you okay with a Christ who says of those mocking him and being violent to him and treating him unjustly, Are you okay with a Christ who says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? And this Christ also speaks to us about a God who sends his reign on the just and the unjust, who sends the Son on the evil and the good. And he looks at us 
And he looks us in the eyes. And he tells us, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Are you okay with that view of your enemies? Jonah wasn't. But that is essential to following Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your grace, your compassion, your steadfast love, your desire to relent from calamity. Thank you for what you've shown toward us. May we be willing to show grace toward others. May we love in moments when it seems impossible for us to love. May we look to you for strength for that. May we seek the good of the people around us. May we even love our enemies. We lift up those who persecute us before your throne of grace. And we pray for good for them. We pray that they will find you. And we pray that they will find joy. May we see tonight that we have too much of Jonah in us and not enough of Jesus. And may you show us Jesus more and transform us more into Jesus this week. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Tonight we're going to sing a song of invitation. We want to encourage you to think tonight about your relationship with God. Are you in Jesus Christ tonight? Have you expressed faith, genuine faith that he is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was raised from the dead on your behalf, and that when you are connected with him, you can have new life? Do you believe that? Are you willing to, like the people of Nineveh, to repent? Maybe you don't see yourself as, as brutal as these people were. It doesn't matter. You're a sinner. And all sinners need to repent. They need to turn to God. They need to turn away from Nineveh and turn toward Him. Faith Repentance, confession of that faith that we believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then our baptism into Christ to go from being outside of Jesus Christ to being buried with Him, joined with Him, as Romans 6 talks about in detail, raised with Him to walk in newness of life, receiving the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, as Acts chapter 2, verse 38 speaks of. A baptism that is by faith in the working of God, Colossians 2, verse 12. Knowing that God is doing something in that moment to bring you into Jesus Christ. If those things haven't come together in your life yet, let them come together tonight. Or if you need prayers of this congregation, let us know. As together we stand and as we sing.